Now that we have a new administration, how have the goals of the Foreign Policy Priority Initiative adjusted? What are the goals now that the Biden administration is in the White House? I'm Dwayne Lester, and in this Insight to Action, I talk with Juliana Hirschap from Americans for Prosperity's Policy Department, and with John Burns and Russ Durstein from Concerned Veterans for America. We talk about Afghanistan, the Veterans Administration, and the greatest national security threat facing America today. Spoiler, it isn't China. Here we go. John, you and and Juliana, you've been on the podcast before. I think it was the first podcast we put out. It was on foreign policy. Welcome back. But Russ, you are brand new, so you get to tell us all about yourself. Okay, wonderful. So I am uh, I'm an Ohio native, um, was in the Air Force six years, um, married uh, since, since 1980, I have three children, I have eight grandchildren, and uh, my adult life has been three phases, uh, military, defense contracting, then I got into grassroots politics and sales, and then uh, the third phase of my life has been CBA. You so said grassroots is, uh, politics and sales, and I, f- I thought, well, that's redundant. That's kind of the same. That thing. is redundant. <laughs> and then you said in CBA, which is triply redundant. So triply redundant. So yeah, that's uh, that's just been a passion of mine, history, and um, specifically. You know, the way our Constitution came about and just what a powerful tool it is for expanding freedom and prosperity for not just U.S. citizens, but just people across the across time and the planet. And uh, so I love connecting people to what makes uh, America work well. Well, we're just going to keep this as conversational as possible. What I want to do now is go to Juliana and let's let's catch up. It's been over a year since we talked about foreign policy on the podcast. What has changed between the first time we talked and now? And then maybe go to John. He could talk a little bit about what we're doing moving forward. Maybe talk about some grassroots stuff with Russ. So what has changed? A lot. So we have a new administration and with new leadership comes shifts in policy. That is something we are seeing right now firsthand when it comes to figuring out what the Biden administration is going to do regarding Afghanistan and the withdrawal deadline that was set for April, end of April. And we also have, you know, changes in on Capitol Hill with different leadership and seeing what's moving and changing and what the new administration is going to stake out as priorities when it comes to foreign policy, as well as within the Department of Veterans Affairs. So I would I would come over the top of that and say you know you know what else has changed is the facts on the ground in Afghanistan you know uh, we are coming up on the deadline of the Doha agreement on May first that, that President Trump signed with the leadership of the Taliban that we would you know we would effectively leave the country uh, by May first of this year uh, and as we've been executing that as as the military has been kind of dragging its heels on that, to be honest. But as they've been executing it, we have a smaller and smaller footprint in Afghanistan. We're down, uh, Juliana, uh, down to about 2,000 troops, if I'm correct, this week, uh, down from 24, 2,500 a few weeks back. Uh, and that means that, that those troops there are more vulnerable, right, because there there are fewer and fewer of them. And 
at the same time, there's there's a lot of hemming and hawing in Washington, D.C. about whether we can execute this. I think the, 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 they're talking about maybe a six-month extension. But, you know, ha- having served in Afghanistan, having been on the ground, American troops there are, are – in many, many ways vulnerable, right? They, they tend to operate in small uh, outposts. I'm, I'm guessing as a, as a former serviceman who served there that most of those 2,000 troops are now centered on places like Bagram and, and Kandahar and Camp Mike Span um, and Mazari Sharif, the big bases. But nevertheless, the mission is training and assist. They're vulnerable to blue on green attacks. And, you know, the way I see it is the Taliban is highly likely to not be very happy unless that there's there's a negotiated extension. But if we just unilaterally extend in Afghanistan, I think it's going to be detrimental to the lives of service members there. And point of fact, in the the almost 14 months since we signed the agreement, there has not been a single U.S. service member who died in combat. There have been two accidents, if I'm correct, in the last year since that was signed, resulting in deaths of service members in Afghanistan. But there hasn't been a single U.S. combat death. And, and I think it would be tragic to have another American service member die after May 1st. Russ, anything you want to add? Yeah, just from the grassroots perspective, one of the things that uh, I'm really noticing is how much, you know, what the things that John and uh, Juliana talked about are becoming more and more commonplace conversations among average citizens. How, you know, the 2016 election was really greatly shaped by foreign policy, President Trump's endless war. We, we heard a conversation about how it had cost Hillary Clinton two elections, the one against Obama in the Democrat primary in eight, and then against uh, Trump. And then it just really has resurfaced since COVID has subsided in, in the national urgency. The election of 2020 took up a lot of space. I'm seeing a, a reemergence of this being something that is just very passionate among American citizens for several reasons. One, it, their great respect for veterans and, and they're normally impacted by a family member or a friend or or just seeing what's going on and, and questioning why are we still there after 20 years, but also the impact it has in taking away priorities from other things that we need to be fixing within our country. And so those two things are driving it. And the other thing that I noticed that is um, – really impactful, really powerful in these conversations is the amount of women that are beginning to engage in this. They are bringing a, I think, a tremendous amount of, of effort and passion and just common sense. And, you know, men have typically engaged in this debate from Vietnam until now, and you almost had to have a statter, veteran status to really speak on the subject. That's all gone by the wayside. And now this has become a conversation that is male, female, old, young, left, right. It is touching one of those rare subjects that touch a large spectrum of the American conscious and population, populace and the conversation that goes into that. When you start looking at what you want to get done in 2021, when you start looking at the policy agenda for this, this year and maybe for this administration looking into the next, next three to four years, what are some of the, well, top priorities, I guess, that we want to see get done? Concerned Veterans for America kind of divides up our, our policy portfolio in kind of three chunks. We talk about foreign policy. We talk about veterans, policies impacting veterans um, once they leave the service, and then also kind of our financial future. And I think in the foreign policy space, it is withdrawing from Afghanistan. That is what we want to see. 
We're also seeing some really interesting momentum on rebalancing constitutional war powers just across the entire political landscape on Capitol Hill. We're seeing individuals step up and engage in that debate that we haven't seen before. We have new members engaging, which is exciting and good to see, on repealing the 2002 AUMF. I think that's very possible. We'll get that done this year. What is that? Um, help, help people understand what you're talking about. Sure. That's the Authorization for Use of Military Force. Um, and that was passed in 2002 when we went to Iraq. And it was against Saddam Hussein's government, which means we're essentially not using it at all whatsoever to justify our military presence anywhere in the world right now. But it's still on the books. It's still active. And we think that should be repealed. If it's not being used, it should not, it should be repealed. And we don't want to see any administration come in and use that AUMF to justify further military action, which is certainly a real danger. And I don't know if John, you want to build on that anymore. I was just going to say, you know, as a service, service member who's, who's retired now, who, you know, has many, many colleagues who are still serving, young guys that I mentored over, over the course of the years. I want to see that not only repealed, but I want to see some, sanity restored to any future AUMFs that we have, right? Um, next time, we, next time, you know, whether it's the Philippines or the Sahal in Africa or, or some other place that, you know, some misguided politician decides that we should invade and fix, uh, the next time that happens, I really want to make sure that there's a, a strategic plan that includes, you know, what the metrics of success are, how, how long we expect to be there, and sunsets so that, you know, that we don't have this open-ended situation like we have now again. The road to, you know, to H-E double hockey sticks is paved with good intentions, as we all know. Um, and there were good intentions of politicians back in 2001, 2002, back in 1991. But these these authorizations for use of military force that just said, oh, we're going to do this and never said we're going to review it. Um, and the future Congresses are not bound, you know, to to act on that. Uh, and they Frankly, they've, they've shown the usual kind of congressional cowardice in terms of stepping up and, and ending any kind of military action or spending. Uh, and, and they're showing, you know, again, a lack of intestinal fortitude at drafting new and better AUMS. So, again, our best hope are a couple of bills that are coming forward that, as Juliana pointed out, we might have a little success in at least taking these off the books, which means that that the next time a, a president, this one or another one, decides to venture somewhere, they'll have to go back to Congress, and Congress will have to make the decision. Hopefully. Are there any other priorities that, that we need to talk about, or getting out of Afghanistan, bringing back some sanity? What else What else are we looking at for this, this administration that we're saying, this is something we really need to see done? So in the veteran space, like kind of moving away from the foreign policy space, we were huge proponents um, in passing the VA Mission Act in 2018, and that's a piece of legislation that we're still talking about because we would want to ensure that veterans have full choice on where they get their health care so that they're not limited to just utilizing VA facilities. And, you know, we are concerned with, you know, change of administration, new leadership, the ongoing pandemic as well, that... The VA may be using those things to restrict the choice that is being given to veterans to access care outside of the, vet the VA. And so we're going to keep the pressure on there and ask what is happening. We also have concerns regarding um, lengthening wait times at the VA as we're kind of coming out of this pandemic. So that's something we're really keeping an eye on and are definitely going to be engaging on more in the coming months. And we can also talk about spending. Yeah, let's look. <laughs> Let's talk about spending. <laughs> so, you know, we just 
over the last year, we've passed a lot of COVID relief bills that have cost a lot of money, trillions of dollars, I think five trillion total uh, when you add them all up. And, you know, that's, that's created a degree of individuals looking at how the federal government is spending their tax dollars and asking questions on, is this necessary? Um, and I think that's even factored into some of our foreign policy conversations as well as people ask, like, are we spending our tax dollars in a way that's keeping us safer? And we see that there is some members of Congress on both sides of the aisle that are saying, does DOD spending need to continue growing at such a rapid pace? There is probably some opportunities for some restraint in the defense budget this year. Anna, what's the what's the estimate on uh, on Afghanistan spending? I don't have the number in front of me, but it's several trillion. I think it's like four trillion. Uh, I know uh, a colleague was talking about it on Twitter, comparing it to the the Build Better Back uh, yeah. bill, and uh, well, you know, I, I, I was thinking about it. Like of those trillion, like like I know I, I, I've told this to people before. As a senior NCO, when I was in Afghanistan back in 2008, I literally dispersed tens of thousands of dollars over the course of eight months in basically slush funds for infrastructure for local police and, and army forces and local communities to be more secure. And really what that meant was I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of that eight months in gravel, to gravel over sand in the desert so that we could build motor pools and, and damp down on the dust in the places where the Afghan army and the Afghan national police were, were training. You know, you multiply that by 18 years you know, of since we we've been in this kind of operational model of training and advising times thousands of NCOs throughout the country, a significant portion of those trillions of dollars that we spent in Afghanistan went to gravel. Yeah. To so gravel. I actually I just pulled up the numbers. It's six point four trillion dollars that we've spent in post nine eleven wars. And you know, the annual cost of the war in Afghanistan is about forty five um billion. So not small numbers whatsoever. So you're telling yeah, me that I can't get gravel in my alley, but we're putting gravel over sand in Afghanistan. You can't get you can't get the local mayor to fill in potholes on your street, but we're 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 graveling over desert in Afghanistan. Wow. Okay. Speaking of spending, John, something you and I have talked about before, and I don't know if you want to get into it now, is is the danger that twenty eight trillion dollars in debt has for our national security. Can you Maybe, Russ, you want to speak to this as well. How big a threat is that national debt? Is that spending to our national security and why? We, we, as you said, we've talked about this before, but it is a huge threat to our national security. And I think that Russ, Julianne, and I all have thoughts on this. It's a huge threat to our national security. You know, our military dominance is is built atop a pyramid that's at, at, based on our economic strength, right? We, we have the the strongest, most technologically advanced, best trained, most potent military that has ever existed on this planet in its history. Uh, but that's predicated on economic success. And, you know, $28 trillion of debt growing, you know, exponentially is a threat that everybody acknowledges is a threat to our economic viability long term. And if we don't get that debt under control, Sooner or later, it's going to impact our ability to maintain military dominance. And, you know, as folks who believe in restraint, you know, we think that having a strong deterrent military capability is the best way to avoid being involved in distant wars, the best way to avoid having, 
blood and, and treasure, having young men and women die and or come back here and then needing care at the VA, which costs us more money. So that $28 trillion debt is just – it's a huge, huge impediment to national security going forward. And I'm just going to say it's actually not $28 trillion anymore. It is now with the recent COVID package. That's that's $30 trillion. That's terrifying. You know, I, I think of three wars when it comes to, to spending, debt, economic power, uh, how that impacts the ability of America to project military might, defend itself. Uh, World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War. And if you think about our ability to help the Allies win the first two World Wars, it came from our economic strength. Um, the amount of material that we produced, the amount of money we could lend, the you know what we did to enable all of our allies and ourselves to uh, not over not only overwhelm Japan and Germany on the battlefield, but to supply our allies with the vehicles, the planes, the bot, etc. We won because we were an economic giant. And then you look at the Cold War, and the reason why the Soviet Union lost it is because they were spending so much more money than what they could afford. Their military budget was out of control. And when they economically collapsed, their military collapsed. And if we are under the mistaken assumption that we can spend without limits, borrow until till for all time, we're, we're sadly mistaken because once that comes home, once interest rates go skyrocket because they're lenders out there won't lend you cheap money anymore, the ability to put a first-class, top-rate military on the field and equipped well to defend ourselves, that's one of the very first things that goes by the wayside when an economic power collapses. So it is absolutely a certainty that experts are right when they say our greatest long-term threat to national security is our debt. And to put that into perspective... I believe it was Admiral Mike Mullins who made that exact statement to Congress. And I think it was during the Bush administration, back in the good old days, when the debt was just $8 trillion. He actually even repeated it at a CVA event way back in 2012. So, Russ, you're talking about there being more conversation about this and that conversation generally trending towards our vision of what the foreign policy should be. But I, I have to think that there are still some folks out there who look at what we're calling for and are either confused or opposed to it. So what would you say to someone out there who's saying, look, we have to we have to have our, our, our folks in Iraq. We have to be involved in these things because if if we're not over there, then they're going to be over here. Yeah, it's a, it's a false haven theory that uh, is subscribed to a lot. And honestly... I subscribe to it, uh, to tell you the truth. Um, my son was in boot camp during 9-11. He's engaged in two different wars, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And the mindset that I had after 9-11 is we got to go kill the bad guys before the bad guys come here and kill us. What we found out and what I've grown from and what a lot of people are becoming are coming to realize when we go to these town halls, have these forums, have online discussions, is that it is smarter to go after the enemy in limited circumstances over the horizon strikes using drones, planes, special forces, than to camp out in a country and try to nation build. Two bad things happen. You spend a lot of wasted money trying to stand up a, a liberal uh, democracy in a country where it's never taken root. And so you waste a lot of money 
and you paint a big target on the back of the military members who were there trying to stand up that that nation. So you actually put veterans in more harm's way than if you stay outside of the country where there's a problem go in when there is a problem, eliminate the problem, and get back out. We do that in a lot of different countries where we have terrorist threats, but we don't nation-build in all of those countries. And the ones where we don't nation-build were far more effective than the ones where we're trying to nation-build, like Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think even the most ardent pro-defense people in the country like myself are coming to that realization there's a smarter way to spend our money when it comes to defense and there's a smarter way to deploy our troops when it comes to defense and the same old tried and true is wore out and we've got to go to a new way of thinking when it comes to foreign policy and i'd I'd highlight one more negative set of consequences that stems from that kind of intervention nation building long-term deployments into places like iraq and afghanistan and that's that's the creation of new enemies that that's that's enabling future generations overseas to have both a, an ideological reason, right? Because we are in uh, in their nation based on nationalism, because we are in their Dara al Islam, their realm of peace. Uh, that they they say so unironically, but but they they think that the realm of Islam is the realm of peace. That we that we the the crusader, we the heathen, we the infidel is a, a an unwelcome presence in their land. And then there's the direct consequences of. You know, our raids and our deployments and our firefights over there create casualties, you know, sometimes with with folks who already support the enemy, giving them more reason to sometimes very often with innocent folks, you know, friendly fire is not fire. Uh, You know, there have been numerous, you know, published incidents of U.S. and allied forces inadvertently or or cruelly targeting civilians. And it creates a a backlash amongst that populace where they don't really welcome us and you know, the, the rise of ISIS out of the skeleton of al-Qaeda was at least in some part driven by the fact that we were still in Iraq as they were, were coming to life. So it's more negative consequences. And again, you know, those those groups can be more managed with limited interventions, preferably over the horizon strikes with technical weapons, preferably the use of special operations forces. Yes, there's a, you know, there's a a need for intelligence to make those operate effectively. And there, there's a need to balance that. But, you know, we have so much inadvertent buy-in from commanders towards staying. And I think that comes down to relationships that they've built over the years. You know, there's probably not a brigade commander in the Army. There's probably not an equivalent in the Marine Corps regimental system uh, in the combat brigades and combat regiments where those folks haven't worked with directly with Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, and feel like, like they'd be betraying their buddies. And they create a huge amount of pressure on the system to stay. Uh, Juliana and, and Russ and I have been hearing anecdotally through through the Washington grapevine, a lot of the pressure to stay is coming from folks within the military, folks within the DOD and the intelligence establishment. And again, we're, we're just continuing to create new enemies by, by listening to that advice in a lot of ways. Juliana, when you look at our vision, our vision is to break barriers, create a society of mutual benefit. Help me understand how that vision is, uh, is found in the, the current strategy, the current vision for foreign policy? It's a big question. You know, I think in the in the veteran space, the barriers that stand between a veteran um, achieving their potential are often structural barriers within the VA. You know, it is um, limited access to healthcare services. It is long wait times. It is having to drive 100, uh, 100 miles each way to receive um, healthcare services. It is 
just the sheer inconvenience of working sometimes within the VA bureaucracy. Sometimes it's disincentives that exist for veterans within the veterans benefit system to, um, for them to be more reliant upon the VA than on, um, individuals in their community and their, in their other support systems. So that's kind of how in the, in the VA that we see it. I don't know, Johnny, you want to tackle the foreign policy side of things or Russ? <laughs> uh, you know, I'll, I'll touch base. So, you know, our, our current vision of a, you know, a more just world uh, where, where there are fewer barriers to individual success, where everyone's individual rights are, are secured is one that is not just limited to the continental United States to America, right? I mean, we believe that this vision is the best way to do business. We certainly, we are concerned veterans for America. We are Americans for prosperity. You know, we are Americans and, and I'm certainly a bit of a nationalist in that way. But that doesn't mean that, that you know, that, that we don't, that we think this formula is restricted to America. And peace is an important part of that prosperity, right? A more peaceful foreign policy is one that drives prosperity. It enhances trade. It allows us to make the most and best use of our resources, which include talented young men and women. It includes the money that we spend on foreign adventures that's going to waste. And it includes the, the same resources in other countries, right? Our vision, while our vision is a vision for a, a, a better nation of America, it's not limited to that, right? We think that this formula is best applied organically, holistically, right? It shouldn't be forced on any country, but we can do the best job of spreading this vision by setting an example. And, you know, our current aggressive interventionalist foreign policy just doesn't support a vision of free trade, of prosperity, of removal of barriers and the, the promotion of individual rights. It's just not based on that because we're, we're, we're spending American lives and treasure to force values on other people. And the, the parts of our policy that I think we forget how it removes barriers and, and, and increases prosperity is you think a lot about there's – a, there's a poker adage that says the money you don't lose spends as well as the money that you win. And and the point of that is there, there are so many ways we don't spend money smartly. There's so many foreign policy engagements that we don't do smartly that the more we waste money, the more we waste time, the more we kill and waste peace – is a detriment to every American from being able to spend that investment more wisely to advance their own self-actualization, their own financial goals, their own prosperity. And so I love being engaged in policy that really tries to strive to limit waste because every dollar that we tax from a citizen that we turn around and waste we've wasted an hour of their work an hour of their life however you want to quantify it that is a barrier to every individual in this country and so being able to get to the root of that and be more efficient in everything we do with uh, with national priorities and policy it, it, it benefits all of I'm excited about every day getting to go to work on those issues. And we are working on those every day, aren't we, Russ? Every single day. I mean, I mean, we're doing all kinds of things. No, seriously. I mean, you know, Juliana knows this. Russ knows this. I mean, we're we're in contact with congressional offices, talking to to them about uh, you know some of those bills on the authorizations for use of military force. Uh, We've been we've been running a full on pressure campaign, and Russ can speak to this a little bit to try and get the White House to honor this this Doha agreement to get the troops out by May first, and to make sure that they know that they're accountable uh, if if Americans die after that. What else are we working on, Russ? We've got a lot going. 
I mean, I just had a really exciting conversation last week with a congressional office about like, how do we audit the VA and see how are they spending our money? And they're excited about the idea. We're excited about the idea. We're just putting our heads together and seeing how can we do that. You know what? One thing I was thinking about while you all were talking was we, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, I guess, communities or groups of people. And I was thinking about barriers and I thought, you know, putting someone right out of boot, putting them in a situation where they're going to see things and experience things that will impact them for the rest of their lives. Putting them in a situation like that unnecessarily, that's an, that's an incredible barrier towards that one individual. And the thing about it is, is very often, it's not very often that it's just that one individual out there seeing those things or experiencing those things. And those barriers will manifest themselves in each person differently. And we've seen that as people come back. Those those barriers, whether it's PTSD or, or whatever, those things, those barriers, they're, they're real and they keep people from their best lives. And, and I guess thinking about that when I signed up, I knew that was a possibility. Being in the Navy, it was very unlikely that I would see combat. I always said, look, if I'm seeing combat on an aircraft carrier, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. But there are people out there who, who will see these things and they expect that. They also expect it to be for a valid constitutional reason that makes sense. And when we when we do that to people who are volunteering, that creates barriers that that some of them just can't overcome. And that's a barrier we need to eliminate as quickly as we can. Well, Dwayne, think about this, what you just said. My soon-to-be 17-year-old grandson, all he's known is, is his dad being at war. How do we in the next 10 20- 20 years recruit that 17 year old to join the military when the barrier is a 20 year war that he may have to serve in for God knows how many years for a healthcare system in the VA that may or may not take care of his needs. Should he get wounded or should she get wounded? How do we recruit the next generation of warriors to defend us when the barriers for anybody joining the military today are higher than they've ever been before? How do we do that? And if we want to think short term, we can, and we're trying to address those. But in 20 years from now, all of us are going to be way beyond the ability to defend ourselves. How do we get that generation to get out there if we don't remove the barriers that they're facing with health care, wasted money, endless wars, et cetera, et cetera? So I love how you brought that around, Dwayne. Let's end on a positive note. Let's end on a high note. Juliana, tell me something that makes you feel positive going into into this year. What inspires you about what we can get done this year? I think some of the stuff that Russ hit on earlier about how, you know, especially within the foreign policy space and around the conversations surrounding our presence in Afghanistan, that for the first time in my life, I feel like I just, everyone that I encounter in interactions outside of work, in that context, um, and just daily interactions. I've never seen such consensus on an issue where individuals just universally across the board agree, it's time to get out. It's time to end our, the war in Afghanistan. And, and even more broadly, just a very much a almost realignment of how we view foreign policy that's happening within kind of the younger generation of individuals who 
like Russ said, are looking at, you know, a 20 year war and asking, why would I sign up for that? And why should we be committing young men and women to serve over there after 20 years? And so I'm very encouraged by that. I feel like just in the kind of the court of public opinion, we have been very winsome and our ideas are just spreading. And, you know, I think people very much agree with us on this issue. And three years ago, I probably would not have said that. I'm going to, I'm just going to follow up on that. I mean, I, I'm so optimistic about where we're going. You know, we, we have changed the conversation uh, around foreign policy in this country in the last 18 months without a doubt. And that, that is, you know, CVA, Concerned Veterans for America has not done that alone. You know, our, our broader partners stand together, the Charles Koch Institute, Charles Koch Foundation, Americans for Prosperity. Dwayne, you talking about it on your podcast and, and some of our, you know, coalition partners from outside our community have all been a part of that. But Concerned Veterans for America has really been a big part of changing how the opinions are shaped and viewed amongst the grassroots in this country around the current conflicts. And it's just part of our, our, our story of success. And same thing with the, the veterans space, right? I'm so optimistic. We, in the past, you know, eight years at Concerned Veterans for America have driven some of the most monumental change, some of the most monumental reforms that we've ever seen in American government. Uh, you know, the, the, some of the greatest successes of our community have and some of the greatest positive successes of our community, where we're playing offense, not defense, have been the reforms that we've achieved over the past six years or so since 2014 at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And we're going to continue to press not only on uh, on ending endless wars and, and you know getting good authorizations for use of military force, but we're going to continue to press for veterans to get full choice at the VA because that's a better solution. We're going to continue to press for a VA that responds to 21st century veterans' needs in terms of benefits, in terms of services, in terms of how they transition, you know, out of the military and into civilian life and, and what, what role the VA plays in that. We're going to continue to drive so that veterans have economic independence no matter what barriers they leave the service with so that they can leave, help lead healthy and prosperous lives. And, you know, I'm so proud to be a, a a longstanding, you know, employee, a member of Concerned Veterans for America, because we really have driven success on these issues, and we're just going to continue to do that. Working through the grassroots, working through our contacts in the Capitol. You know, this is this is a dynamic organization. It's not going anywhere, and we continue to we're going to continue. We intend to continue to win. Frankly, you know, there's uh, not a lot of organizations that really effectively connect great policy, great education passionate volunteers and grassroots activists into one unit that advocates and promotes and actually accomplishes change. And that's what's so wonderful about being part of uh, Stand Together Community, Americans for Prosperity, Concerned Veterans for America. And the thing that I'm seeing that gives me hope for this year coming up is the willingness of people to set aside division of politics into working towards principled solutions. There's a new willingness to do that. We saw it in CJR. We're seeing it in endless wars and, and changing foreign policy. There are a lot of people who are just say, forget the divide, the party line divides. Let's just get common sense solutions accomplished. And finally, I'm seeing that take off in a way that I haven't in, in a long time. Thanks again to Juliana, Russ, and John for taking time to talk about foreign policy. And if you have any questions about this particular priority initiative, please send me an email at i2a at afphq.org. 
I look forward to reading your questions and comments. And if you haven't taken time to rate the podcast on whatever service you listen to podcasts on, now's a great time to do that. So please do. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and this has been Insight to Action.